When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Manchester is Red podcast from the Manchester Evening News. Uh, myself, Tyrone Marshall, hosting today. Only two of us on. Samuel Lockhurst just back from Seville, ahead of going back to Seville in a few weeks' time. Uh, United, United making a habit of being in Seville this season. Having been there in, in December as well. Um, in their uh, their World Cup friendly, um, so we'll touch on that Real Betis game to to start with. Samuel, your journey back this morning sounded like it was relatively stress free. And what what did you make of of that game last night? It was apart from uh, what the Brexiteers have inflicted on us with the passport control queues at, at Malaga Airport. But fortunately, we we, we didn't miss our flight at all. Uh, we were allowed in at the front. But going on to matters of of. Uh, greater interest to, to United supporters. It was, it was very professionally done, apart from the first 15 minutes, which were pretty frantic. And I, I didn't really get what United w- were playing at, really. They were very loose. It was almost as if they were chasing the game at times. They had a couple of glimpses, if you, if you like, and that seemed to embolden them to play in a more uh, expansive way when they really didn't need to. And that gave Juanmi that opportunity where he scuffed wide. He, he didn't have a good night at all. Juanmi obviously had that one-on-one with De Gea, which De Gea saved in the first half and he had another decent opportunity in the second. It, um, the, the death knell for Betis was the failure to score in the first half. And you could just sense a different mood, a different atmosphere in the second half. In the first half, the fans were very uh, fervent. They were very optimistic. They were singing Sisi Puede, uh, I think it was, which is, yes, we can. Ultimately, no, they couldn't because, as I said, it was absolutely imperative for them to to at least get one goal, at least be 1-0 up at half time to give them any remote chance and the failure to do that I think that just drained them of all confidence and it wasn't a coincidence in the first 10 minutes of the second half United had well they had two excellent opportunities for Rashford uh, he was the first one very very tame the second one I think he just well I mean he did overcompensate for it because he put it nearer the Plaza de España than, than the goal and then with the one which is Barely a chance, uh, not, not really a chance for for most uh, forwards at the moment. But it is a chance for him. He, he buried it. It was a terrific strike and um, a, a measure of his resilience as well. That in such a short space of time, after two, after wasting two very good opportunities and and really not playing very well up until uh, he scored, he still scores a, a terrific goal and and that did it really. And it was easy for United to just meander through the rest of the match. Key players came off, some players came on and, and got some minutes. Those who haven't had minutes were able to stay on and get 90 minutes under their belt. So it, it went all according to plan after those, as I said, those first frantic 15 minutes where uh, they, they did seem to be, from United's perspective anyway, they, they were a little bit too chaotic and also the atmosphere seemed to throw them off, uh, off kilter a little bit. Yeah, it, it did feel like that midfield was was overrun slash non-existent in in the first half. It was a 
a basketball match, I think, for a lot of the first half. I mean, it, it probably didn't need to be for United. There wasn't a, a lot of control until they scored, really. It was noticeable afterwards that players talking about professional performance, which I, I guess it was in the end. They survived that early onslaught, but more by luck than judgment at times. Um, in terms of sort of the standout performers, we'll, we'll start with someone who maybe wasn't the best player on the pitch, but it might have been the biggest night for in, in Facundo Palestri finally getting that first United start, 193 days after after he'd signed for the club. I mean, what do you make of his performance? It feels like he's he's one of the few wingers in this squad who can offer something different. He's a bit of a, a throwback, really. You can also almost imagine him at home in, in, in Fergie's kind of 4-4-2 teams, being a right-footed right winger who just tears down down the touchline and to the byline and, and uses his pace to get beyond defenders doesn't he and, and you can't underestimate that quality even in an era where it's it's about inverted wingers you, you, you do need that variety and unfortunately for him at the start he had a decent opportunity where he went on a good run he was on the side and call it early you know the, the adrenaline rush or uh, not, not necessarily nerves but probably more just the you know being a bit adrenaline charged and he, and he overhit the cross by, by quite a way when he probably should have found Vecorce or at least given Vecorce half a chance uh, by, by playing a better ball in um, you know he, he had a couple of dashes early on uh, that I mean Rashford should have played him in it was it, the time of the run was Perth from Palestri we, we had a very lofty vantage point and you can tell in most cases whether a player's onside or not and, and he was but unfortunately Rashford overhit it uh, the booking he got was one of the strangest and most egregious that's ever been handed out by a referee so it, it, it wasn't much of a first half where there was a lot to write home from from his part but he started the second half quite brightly he contributed to that first opportunity for Rashford and it was the first time he played 90 minutes in a club game in nearly two years I think he played 90 minutes for Alaves against Atletico Madrid in March 2021 he didn't play in 90 minutes once for Alaves while he was on loan there for the entirety of last season so it was probably a surprise that he did manage to stay out the entire game because he's had many uh, matches where he's played 90 minutes even for Uruguay I'm not sure that he's completed a full game for them yet having made his debut in January of last year but he's, he's clearly got a lot to offer it was a satisfying night for him a couple of us spoke to him in the mix zone afterwards and he's a very likeable lad he's very polite uh, speaks good English uh, what I've been impressed about him most more, more so than his contributions when he's come on in those six cameos it's just his his attitude he's clearly got a very good attitude for someone who's had to wait as long as he has to to make his united debut and then to make his full united debut and and to perform at a, a pretty acceptable level in in some cases and exceed expectations in in other cases shows that he's he's a good lad and and you know he's got a good professional there and and he is an asset it's just it remains to be seen what they'll do with him going forward he's been penciled in for a loan move next season things can obviously change at the moment he's he's likely to have more more opportunities because Garnacho's going to be injured until April at the earliest I'm not necessarily sure going off Ten Hag's tone and, and the tone of Garnacho's post the other day that that means he's going to be back for Newcastle away on on April the 2nd so it might be a fair way down the line until he's available for United again it's, it's unclear if Anthony will be available for the weekend so all of a sudden Palestri is in contention to make his, his full domestic debut as well which uh, you know is, is, is positive for him given that I think in December his agent was certainly 
itching to get him out of United and to get him on loan in January because he hadn't had a kick in the first half of the season. But really since that behind closed doors friendly against Everton in December where Ten Hag, I think it was unprompted as well, he, he mentioned how well he had performed in it. He's very gradually got more opportunities. Uh, I think he wasn't even in the League Cup final squad because he was injured. Uh, there, there was an injury that he had that hadn't been reported by United, but he he told us, myself and Simon Peach last night, that uh, unfortunately recently he had an injury. So I, I presume it was during that period. He's ahead of Anthony Alanga in the pecking order as well. So he's a certainty to be on the at least on the bench on Sunday, but there's probably an outside chance uh, of him getting a start. But I suspect, given that was his first 90 minutes in nearly two years, it's a bit of a stretch for him to play another 90 minutes in in a cup tie where there's a hell of a lot more at stake and and Fulham have, have obviously had a very good season as well. Yeah, I hadn't realised it had been so long actually since he, he completed 90 minutes. There was one moment in the second half when he was involved in, in creating that first chance, I think it was, for for Rashford on the break when he played it into Fernandez and, and Fernandez played it into Rashford where he went shoulder to shoulder with a severe defender and it was a severe defender that, that ended up on his backside and that was it was yeah. an eye-catching moment in a way because you don't associate that kind of strength and, and physical conditioning with Palestri he's, he's very slight and that did suggest that he might he might have what it takes to, to thrive in the English game and if he does go on loan next year he, he probably needs a Premier League or, or maybe even a Championship loan if he's yeah, going to have definitely. any chance of of making it at United, like you say, I think he's clearly above Alanga in the pecking order at the moment. Um, I mean, before we get on to Rashford, did anyone else really catch your eye? I thought it was not a populist opinion, but I thought it was a good night for for Harry Maguire. He was pretty solid, pretty secure in the back, at the back after maybe a bit of a, a shaky start. Um, De Gea as well, secure in everything he did. I thought his positioning in terms of sweeping up behind a pretty high line was good. He, he was off his line quickly to deal with a couple of... Um, a couple of balls over the top and that did look like a, a, a target for Betis to try and get in behind but De Gea was beaten to it on a, a couple of occasions did, did anyone else really stand out for you? I mean De Gea had a couple of dodgy kicks at the start which was That's not a very given, given the Spain squad's come out today <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I, I've not seen if he's if he's in it no, I, I, I can't imagine he is um, it's that's that's a that's that's a push news push notification, but I don't think it's telling me whether David Day is in the uh, in the Spain squad or not. Uh, but again, you, you kind of saw the best and worst for him in that his his kicking is. I mean, you you expect it to be the way it is, but. It, when when it mattered most, actually keeping the ball out the back of the net, he did do that. It was it was a relatively routine save for him. Um, he's not in the Spain squad. I, I hope I'm looking. Oh no, that's the the under twenty one squad. So he's definitely not going to be in that. I'm I'm, I'm trying to quickly Produ- scroll. Producer Sam is telling us he's squad. not he's not in the squad. So um, he's not. Producer Brilliant. Sam says not thank, in the thank squad. You to Sam. Yeah, um, that's that's not a surprise. No, no, definitely not. And, and I guess the. Uh, you know, the Sorry, the, the star of the night again is is Marcus Rashford. It's in a way I said this last night. It felt peak Rashford that he missed the two easier chances and then just thrashes one in nonchalantly from twenty five yards with with a bit of dip, a bit of swerve to to go right in the corner. That that's probably a bit unfair, really, given how good his finishing has been um, this season. Twenty seven goals now, but. You know, he it, it, he was he was the one name on that team sheet that it really surprised me he was starting, given Sancho was on the bench and 
been involved in in 43 successive games now for United. Those five games in the World Cup. Tenag is is taking a bit of a risk with him, I think, in, in playing him so often, but he's producing the goods at the moment. So you have to say he's, he's handling him pretty well and it, it was a fantastic goal, wasn't it? Oh, it was. Uh, he's he's got that in his locker. I mean, there, there was a criticism of him not long ago that he would hit every shot that way. It would always be on the laces, or he he would try and opt for that Ronaldo technique. And he's not done that this season. He has mixed it up a hell of a lot. With, I mean, he's, the volume of his goals is, is is well known now. He's got twenty seven goals, thirty goals for club and country this season. But there's been real good variety about the way he scored them. He scored a couple of cracking headers. I think he scored nearly as many headers this season as he has in the entirety of his career. I think it's if he gets one more header than than he will have done. And it's it's difficult really as, as as a journalist afterwards when Rashford is the match winner. Like what more can you say? I mean, the, the the way to take it on now is and we know what the answer will be from Ten Hag is it's about emulating Robin van Persie he was the last United player to score 30 goals in the season that was 10 seasons ago I think bar a cruel intervention Rashford will do that I mean Ibrahimovic probably would have done it in 2016-17 had he not ruptured his uh, anterior cruciate ligament in in that I think it was the quarterfinal against Anderlecht in the Europa League he did it and Marcus Rojo uh, sustained the exact same injury on the, on the same night so with, with Rashford, there's there's not a lot more to say at the moment. He's he's been so good. That's that's the compliment, really. We, there's we, we've you know given him all these superlatives, and they've all been entirely deserved. I, I think he has to be a shoe in for the Premier League team of the season. You'd think it would be Haaland up front, Rashford on the left, Saka on the right, probably Martin Odegaard um, as as the number ten. I think that's a, a pretty fair front four if it comes to that and yeah and a, and a pretty pretty good front four as well so yeah with, with Rashford I mean I, I marked him a seven because he scored the winning goal and it was a great winning goal but up until then he was probably a, a five out of ten I thought as you said I thought Maguire did well and like, we can't be worried about what um, a certain demographic think of Harry Maguire if he plays well you, you say it and and you you, you Make that make that apparent, and he did play well. Martinez played well. Um, I thought the two centre backs were, were pretty good in general. Defended well. Uh, they, they those opportunities Sevilla had the the Juanmi one in particular. I thought that was a consequence of the, the midfielders kind of abandoning uh, the United defenders and playing too high a line in those case, in, in those moments and coming a cropper and being a bit too loose. Once they managed that, it was fine. Casemiro didn't start particularly well but I thought he made his um, you know he, he became more authoritative as the game grew on lovely pass for Rashford's goal as well so it wasn't a night where you came away from again you were thinking wow that player was absolutely amazing and and that was that's why it was the cliched professional job done by United uh, a 1-0 away from home in Europe is is always a good win and they, they had that three goal cushion going into the game anyway that's all for, for part one. We will be back after the break to talk about the quarterfinal draw and the latest news on the takeover. Mm-hmm. 
Welcome back to the Manchester is Red podcast. Uh, a unique experience at Eric Ten Hag's pre-Fulham press conference today, which was held at Carrington at, at midday rather than in Seville last night. Uh, he, he came in for the, the press conference timely, actually, at midday, which was a surprise to us. And during the open section, I think most of us had, had got a question in. It was just about to end and we had the unique possibility, our, our colleague Simon Stone at the BBC had the unique possibility to actually break the quarterfinal draw to Ten Hag and, and get his live reaction, um, which was interesting. We know they've got Sevilla now in the, the Europa League. Um, probably not a lot Ten Hag can say if have just been throwing that information, but the one thing we know about Sevilla and the Europa League is that they often win it. Uh, not having a great season domestically, but that, that's never stopped them before in Europe. I suppose for United fans, it's it's a bit of a a dull draw in a way. They they played Sevilla in the Champions League under under Jose Mourinho not so long ago and got knocked out. Uh, obviously, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's team lost in the Europa League to to Sevilla, and they've just got back from uh, Seville and, and Real Betis. But what what's your thoughts on on the draw and, and Sevilla in the last sixteen, and I guess the possibility of Juventus or Sporting in the semi final as well. You don't look too ahead of ourselves to, to to the semi final, but obviously the the prospect of and and also Sporting who, who looked really impressive last night against Arsenal from what I saw of it. But the, the prospect of, of Pogba and Di Maria coming back to Old Trafford in European semi final would would be something to, uh, to to really witness, given the the absolute stick that. Di Maria got when he went back with with Paris Saint Germain uh, in, in in 2019. But with Sevilla, normally if you draw them in the Europa League, it's it's the death knell because they are the Europa League specialists. They've won it what five or six times in the last fifth yeah, and and that's come within a what a 16 year period. I think I think they won it in 2006 in Glasgow and uh, obviously oh sorry no in 2006 they beat Middlesbrough in the final uh, and and I think they won it in Glasgow the next year and since that Middlesbrough win I think it starts in 2006 they've they've just been known as Europa League specialists and United of course lost them in the semi-finals in Cologne uh, a few years ago when the, the, the Europa League and European competitions were delayed and then it was these one-off ties in, in, in one city because of, of the pandemic. But I suppose if there is a season to have drawn severe, it's this one because they're, they're having a poor season. I think they're, they're actually 13th in, in La Liga. It wasn't long ago that they were in the relegation zone. Uh, there seems to be uh, it seems like sorry the the supporters have turned against Monchi, who's the celebrated director of football, who who briefly left, went to Roma, and felt like a fish out of water. So he went back to Sevilla, and he's he's contributed immensely to their success. But it seems like there's come it's come to a point now where they've they've stagnated, or you know, there's there's a need for for, for you know urgent change there. Um, I mean, Hulen Lopetegui. Uh, got got sacked earlier this season, didn't he? Uh, and and he was being talked about as potentially taking over at, at United at one point last season. I don't think anybody truly believed that with with the United manager's role, it was always going to be Pochettino or Ten Hag. But Sevilla have got a good pedigree in the Europa League, and I think that's why when West Ham did beat them last season, it's it's become one of these very immediately celebrated nights in West Ham law because not only was it a season where they progressed to the semi-finals of of a European competition, but they, they beat Sevilla. And that was supposed to be, as I said, the, the death knell for, for, for most clubs when when you come across Sevilla in this competition. So United, 
as I said, I think it's, it's the right time to draw. If you're to draw Sevilla in the Europa League, this is the season to do it. And uh, I mean, I suppose if you're talking about Monchi's recruitment hit rate, taking Alex Tellez on loan is, is is quite questionable. He he should be eligible to play against United as well, given that Diogo Dallo played against United for AC Milan a couple of years ago. But Isco went back to Sevilla in, at the start of the season and his contract was terminated a, a couple of months ago. So that gives you an idea of some of the strife that they've they've encountered there. But it's 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 a hell of a stadium. I mean, when United drew nil nil there uh, five years ago, it was the, it was not a particularly memorable game whatsoever. It was memorable only for that save from from David de Gea, uh, one of his one of his greatest. But the stadium was extremely atmospheric, very similar to the Betis uh, stadium last night, which um, you know was was quite quite a sight to behold. Pre match, uh, walking to the ground with with the supporters and. One guy had a megaphone, the other guy had a drum, which I, I don't want inside a stadium, but outside a stadium, I think that's perfect. perfectly... Um, I, I'm, I'm prepared to make an allowance for that. But I thought the Sevilla atmosphere five years ago was, was one of the best that I've, I've experienced. So uh, given that their season will hinge on winning the Europa League, and of course, if you win the Europa League, it's been even more incentivised now because victory in the Europa League means you're not only going into the Champions League, you're going into the Champions League as top seed. So you can't, you certainly can't underestimate Sevilla just because of their pedigree in the competition and their season very much does depend on on um, doing well in the Europa League. Yeah, and United have, have gone out to Spanish opposition five years in a row, I think, now in, in Europe. So there's always that, yeah, that, that, that still nervous stands, element. That, that I guess still that, there. that yeah. still goes, yeah, yeah. And then... The, the sixth different Spanish opposition they've faced in the last two years and, and fourth this season, but beyond Atletico Madrid, that they've not really had too much trouble with, with any of them. And the way they've beaten Barcelona and Real Betis this season, when you look at Sevilla in, in 13th, and, and maybe they're improving a little under San Pauli, yeah. but it's not, you know, they're not making huge strides. The, the only real concern, like you say, is that Europa League pedigree and maybe it's almost like Real Madrid in the Champions League and, and that's the one thing that makes you nervous that, that something something slightly magical happens to them in, in the Europa League. But I think United will, will certainly be strong favourites and like you say, the possibility of that Juventus semi-final is, um, is, is mouth-watering. The, the other noticeable thing at the, um, at the press conference today was... Uh, partly the timing of it, that, that we arrived at Carrington at pretty much the same time as uh, as Sir Jim Ratcliffe. A few of us were were quickly coiled back inside the main reception when we tried to, to step outside and and have a look for the the convoy, the Ineos convoy, including um, Sir Dave Brailsford uh, arriving at Carrington. We did see a, a blacked out a couple of black, blacked out people carriers um, arriving at Carrington and, and we were quickly even shoved away from the window and, and not allowed to, to take photos so it was very much um, very much a lockdown operation keeping us keeping us well away from uh, from any of the Ineos people but the, the first question to Tenag in his press conference was was about the takeover and, and Ratcliffe being there and he did say he'd, he'd just met him and had, had shaken hands and, and had a brief brief hello with him really which I think surprised everyone I think we all thought he would he would play the possibility down um it's obviously been a, a big week for, for the potential takeover with Sheikh Dazim and uh, the, the Qatar delegation representing him at least yesterday being at, at Old Trafford and Carrington. I mean, what? how do you sort of see the picture at the moment in, in regards to the takeover and, and what is happening at the moment? Because it, it has been, it, it does feel like it's been a significant week, doesn't it, for it? It does, and it feels like there's, there's almost a, not an even split, but there's a split in that you've got 
Sheikh Hassim, who was was not present for these discussions on Thursday, but with the online community, if you can call them that, he is very ardently backed because that's that's the way it goes these days. I mean, uh, you know, Manchester United's appeal to so many supporters, so many followers of football around the world, and Qatar is this. It's this up and coming force in in football, if you like. The, the Qatari national team aren't a force, but Qatar as a nation has got involved in football through Paris Saint Germain. It wants to become more involved in football. It's just hosted the World Cup. That's emboldened them to take another step. And, and Manchester United are one of the biggest sporting institutions on the planet. So that's the appeal of it is is immense. And also the the statement that. Um, confirmed Sheikh Hassin's interest in buying United, stressed that it it would be a debt-free uh, takeover, which is also going to appeal to a lot of supporters who, for well, since the takeover happened by the Glaze family in 2005, the, 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 the debt has been more than just a bugbear. It's something that uh, has certainly hampered United at times, even though they have spent I mean, Rich Arnold said himself during his pub talk session in, uh, in in Cheshire last year that they've they've burned through a billion pounds in cash because they didn't spend wisely in the transfer market. So, I think the a lot of overseas supporters are obviously going to be uh, supportive of 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 Sheikh Hassim. Then you have Sir Jim Ratcliffe, who was born in Greater Manchester. He has been on site today. There's a brilliantly framed photograph of him taken by Eamon Clark with uh, the East Stand exterior in the background. And I think his hand is is quite near the Samat Busby statue. And you've got the neon red Manchester United words above it. Uh, you know, it's it, he, he must have known what he was doing, Ratcliffe, when he was making that walk. And uh, he's obviously been filmed pictured today meeting Richard Arnold, the chief executive, uh, Colette Roach, who's the chief operating officer. There are a couple of other faces that you and I will recognise just from going to games in Old Trafford and, and, and going to games specifically uh, in, in a press capacity. You see certain faces walking along stadium managers uh don't know them by name but we see them a lot they see us a lot and you, you recognize the face and th- those people have been chaperoning Ratcliffe as well today and because Ratcliffe is is a local man that is going to appeal to the matchgoers and that's the, the that's an important distinction the matchgoers invest financially in Manchester United they are paying season ticket prices a lot of them will be buy merchandise in the club shop. Um, They will have kids who want kits. They'll have kids who want other... I mean, God knows what else you can buy in the megastore these days, but I can imagine there's a lot of regalia. There'll be, I don't know, dog bowls in there, God knows what. Um, And and that's going to appeal to people who can access that. You can obviously buy it online as well, but if if you can be there present, you're likely to spend more money. And... I think that's something that people have to realise where the it's not discrepancy as such, but that's why it's that the, the the split is there in the match going United supporters, whether they're forty years old, fifty years old, uh, thirty years old, seventy years old, however whatever their age, they are probably going to be you know more inclined to hope that a chap who was born in Greater Manchester and who's been on site today. Um, 
is is takes takes charge of the club. It's it's that local element to it. Whereas Sheikh Hasim is very international, and there's a very international fan base um, that Manchester United have, and a large portion of that would be in favour of Sheikh Hasim as well. And I think what uh, what came out from Sheikh Hasim's statement last month, uh, it was it was impressive. It, it ticked a lot of the boxes. It sounded great. So that is going to appeal to a lot of fans domestically and also internationally. Uh, whereas with with Ratcliffe, I mean it's, it's it's interesting in a way because when Ratcliffe before the announcement came out in November from the Glazer family that they were open to a sale, Ratcliffe was seen as the panacea, and I think everyone was every United fan was behind the prospect of him being the owner of the club and him take, taking over, and he'd made it known that he was interested in buying Manchester United as well, and that was fine. As soon as there was uh, external interests and there's some irony there because Ratcliffe does live in Morocco and he's not he doesn't pay British taxes as well but you know I'm I'm talking about obviously Sheikh Hassim here and there was suggestions that there might have been Saudi interests since that became concrete and that was confirmed last month there's been a hell of a lot of support for uh, Qatari involvement in United and I think the the World Cup has helped that as well because uh, for what four weeks uh, Qatar was the epicentre of the universe all eyes were on it because it hosted some tremendous football matches and and probably the best World Cup final ever so it was a great advertisement for Qatar as a as a footballing entity and now they want to branch out with 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 Manchester United so we we can go on about it all day why people are in favour of Sir Jim Ratcliffe why others are in favour of Sheikh Hassim but it does feel like there's a more defined split now, even though you know th- 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 there are a lot of nuances to it, as we've discussed before, as I've written before, <laughs> as a well-known, uh, you know, w- with Qatar, it's it's sports wa- it's sports washing, as it was with Abu Dhabi and City, as it was with QSI and PSG, as it was with the takeover of Newcastle United last season, and yes, with Sir Jim Ratcliffe, he voted for Brexit. A lot of people will not like that. Uh, he was knighted and then he moved to uh, Monaco to avoid pay, paying British taxes. He won't like that. A lot of United fans won't like the fact that he bid for Chelsea last year. Uh, a lot of United fans will say, well, if he's such a United fan, why did he have a Chelsea season ticket? Others won't um, take kindly to, uh, you know, the, because he's obviously the owner of Ineos, which is petrochemicals, fracking. So there's there's a greenwashing element to it as well. So, uh, you know, however, wherever your moral compass points, there are there are aspects of both potential buyers that are going to be unappealing at certain people, but people have different, as I said, people have different morals, different different principles, and different preferences. So, whoever comes in, not everyone is going to be happy. And ultimately, as we've seen with other football clubs, if if there is a new owner, as long as the team are winning, more often than not that does make supporters sanguine with the ownership. And that definitely has been the case at times under the Glazer family. It hasn't always been the sustained protesting since 2005 when Manchester United were winning uh, the the Premier League three years on the trot between 2007 to 2009 and won the European Cup in 2008. There was not 
there was there were next to no protests against the Glazer family. The first real protests after the takeover in two thousand five were the green and was started with the green and gold movement at the um, at the start of twenty ten. But it has obviously over the last year, maybe, maybe the last few years, in fact, uh, it's felt like there's been a more um, a, a more vocal presence uh, making themselves heard about their opposition to, to the Glazers. Yeah, and, and the fact is, good luck finding a multi-billionaire who, who isn't morally dubious in, in one way or another. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's all for this part of the podcast. We will be back in a minute to talk about the Fulham game this weekend. Welcome back to the Manchester is Red podcast. Uh, there is one more game to go before the international break and this relentless stretch of the season between the World Cup and, and the March internationals is, is finally at an end and me and Samuel can put our feet up as can some of the United players who, who aren't going away on, on internationals. We were talking about this at the presser today but it's 12 successive midweek games for United now. I think it's going to be 16 in the end if you if you don't count the international break, or at least 16, it could well go beyond that if they keep going in, in Europe. I guess it's what you get when you're successful, and, and they are winning every cup match at the moment. It's, it's a guarantee of at least 60 games a season now, and you would think by Sunday night that would be 61. Uh, Fulham at home, of course, in, in the FA Cup quarter-final. United, I think, 21 undefeated now at Old Trafford, 22 undefeated maybe. It's it's a great home record, and as good as Fulham are doing it, it should be a home win. I guess the big the big talking point going into it is what are United going to do about not having Casemiro for, for four successive domestic games now? I did ask Ten Hag about that at the, at the press conference. <laughs> as one of our colleagues has suggested, it was my do your research moment. It wasn't quite that brutal. Um, but he, did, he didn't say do your research. He didn't either. say do your research. Looking, no, it was suggested. No. Suggested his eyes said it, but you know, well, um, I had my head down. I was trying not <laughs> trying not to look at him because I could sense he wasn't best pleased. But um, you know, as much as he disputed it and, and suggested United have played very well without Casemiro, they have also struggled immensely with without him at times. And it's clear he performs a function in this team that that a lot of others that anyone else really can't do. So. How do you go about replacing him in, in this team? I guess it's it's less important. The fixtures are kind in a way, these these four games, that they're not Arsenal away or Man City away or Man City at home. But is it simply a case of, of bringing in Scott McTominay and, and playing the same way? Or do you have to change more than that because Casemiro is so unique? I wouldn't have thought McTominay will come in. I think he's very much the fifth choice midfielder now and the fact that Sabitzer came on ahead of him uh, for the second half uh, not, not the, the entire second half from Betis but he came on uh, was it for Fernandez? I think it might have been uh, or for Fred but that that seemed to indicate that he will he will start the weekend and he started this is a bit obviously he started three times with with Fred already I think McTominay's last start against West Ham he came off at half time because it, it just wasn't working and they needed to they needed to to make a change there or Ten Hag certainly felt that they needed to and also you can't underestimate um the, the Fulham midfield. I mean, Ten Hag underestimated Southampton's midfield last week, which I've, I found quite peculiar in that he only started one outright central midfielder in Casemiro when you come up against Ward-Prowse and, and Romeo Lavia, who looks a, a really, really good player and really should be playing in the Premier League next season. 
if, if Southampton do go down. And you look at Fulham's midfield, Harrison Reed's had a pretty solid season and uh, you know he's, he's he's done well for himself given that he he was one of those Southampton products who didn't quite make it at Southampton when a lot of their st- you know standout uh, academy players were, were getting into the first team but he's he's clearly good enough at Premier League level and uh, there's also the I forget his name now the the Portuguese um, midfielder who, who scored a cracker against uh, Palinha, Jao Palinha, who scored against Leeds in the last round, who's having a really good season as well and has already been talked up. You know, the, the, the speculation that he might be on the move in the summer to, to, to bigger and, and possibly better things. So I think it'd be remiss of Ten Hag to, to underestimate that. And I don't think he will do after how it went against Southampton last week. I think it will be Fred and Sabitzer, which has been a work in progress. Ten Hag said at one of his press conferences, last month about you know the, the challenge of integrating a player into the team in a month where the games are coming thick and fast and there's a lot of jeopardy attached to those games because I mean last month there were two um there were there was the doubleheader against Barcelona of course there was the League Cup final um did they play I can't remember if they, no West Ham I think was at the start of March but in the in the league there was still a little bit of tentative talk by some that maybe United could you know come up with a title challenge and they found themselves 2-0 down at home to Leeds in in Sabitzer's first start and he's not he's not started many games since Casemiro came back from that three match suspension for getting sent off against Crystal Palace I think it was only the West Ham Cup game he did start in but of course now he's he's absolutely needed and uh, Christian Eriksen isn't going to be back until late April so there's the prospect of not just starting this weekend for Sabitzer but also starting in uh, three domestic matches next month which I think would be against Newcastle away Brentford at home and Everton at home so it's it's an opportunity for him to, to stake his claim but more importantly and more uh, immediately, they've, they've got to get through a, a pretty, possibly a tricky cup tie against Fulham. I know Fulham have had a couple of bad results recently and maybe, uh, I mean, they're, they're going to be in the Premier League next season. They've, they've exceeded expectations to be in the position they're in the Premier League and to be in the FA Cup quarterfinals. I mean, Marco Silva has been one of the unexpected success stories of the season, given how all right, when at his previous three Premier League clubs, he went down with Hull. Um, you know, Watford sacked him because Everton wanted him, and then when Everton finally got him, uh, they they didn't really show much faith in him and, and and sacked him. I think just before Christmas, and that was in 2019. So he was probably a little bit lucky to get a plum job, plum championship job in Fulham. But he has had a, a terrific effect there, um, getting them promoted as well as they did last season. And the challenge for them has always been, can they stay in the Premier League? They've always invested heavily, but they've not quite got the balance right. But this season they clearly have, and a lot of credit has to go to Silver for that. So it's one of those matches that is... I think there's the clichéd banana skin element of it as, as you know, is is people are prone to say in the FA Cup but given the quality that United have, have still got available and, and Ten Hag certainly uh, signposted some of the recalls in midweek I mean Shaw and Varane will come back in uh, uh, I mean Rash, Rashford came off in the second half Martinez came off in the second half Fernandes came off in the second half 
they will all start, obviously. You might see Dallow come back in uh, because I thought Wan-Bissaka was very, very limited in, in, in Seville. So United have got more than enough quality to, to win that game, even though they found it pretty tough going against Fulham back in November. They, they played pretty well in the first half, but weren't ruthless enough. And then they almost ended up drawing the game, but for that late Garnacho goal. So uh, there's the possibility of extra time as well. They won't have as many game changers on the bench with Garnacho injured. Um, obviously, Anthony, it remains to be seen if he'll he'll be fit again after his illness in, in the week. I don't think he trains today, looking at the uh, images that the, the rights holders were able to get and uh, it sounds like Marshall might not even be risked either on, on Sunday so they, they would be lacking attacking options off the bench and this is a game that could go to, to 120 minutes so it's it, it'll be interesting to see how how well drilled United are given that there are some inf- there is one in particular key enforced change and th- their record with without Casemiro uh, since he came into the team I think he can dismiss the early season Wins well against Liverpool. He, he couldn't play uh, the Arsenal game. Ten Hag had established quite a settled side when they beat them in in September. The more relevant games where Casemiro hasn't played in uh, are obviously the defeat to Arsenal, where United did get battered. That the scoreline wasn't entirely a fair reflection of the dominance Arsenal enjoyed that day. They were 2-0 down against Leeds United and they needed a goal uh, quite a late goal. I think they went 1-0 up against Leeds at Ellen Road in the 80th minute. So, And also the midfield duo across these games where Casemiro has, hasn't been playing in, they've not particularly performed. I think Sabitzer's best impacts have been off the bench. Sabitzer and Fred as a starting duo, they've not I think in those three games, I don't think they've really shone necessarily. And that's understandable because one of them only came in in January and he's only a loan signing. So uh, for United's sake, they have to hope that there's a better understanding in this game on, on Sunday. Yeah, you mentioned Martial there. I think Tanaga said he he won't be involved. He's he's clearly being handled uh, very delicately. I think been back in training for about 10 days now, but but not featured in, in any games. So clearly not not risking him given his injury record this year. Um, I mean, one Fulham player, I guess, is, is worth touching on a bit more is Andreas Pereira, who didn't really create many headlines when he left United last summer. Um, the only player they, they managed to, to sell got £10 million for him, which perhaps looks a little undervalued now given given how well he's he's done to Fulham and I think we all thought at the time it was probably a, a bit of a strange one given he'd not made much impact in, in the Premier League at United that, that sensational goal against um, Southampton aside probably but done done really well at Fulham three goals and six assists in, in 31 games Ten Hag was asked about him today and talked about working with him at PSV Eindhoven in the youth system there as well Um someone he he clearly knows a little bit but was happy to sanction that sale in the summer and did kind of make the point that sometimes you've when, when you're at a club as big as United sometimes you've got to go away and go to a smaller environment to to find your feet and get your opportunities and Barrera has has done that and grasped that and playing in that advanced role for, for Fulham and linking up well with with Mitrovic he he is someone that, that is going to be a threat to United back at Old Trafford this weekend isn't he? Yeah I remember during the 2019-20 season, I spoke to someone uh, who knows him quite well and they said, if you notice his best performances, talking about that season, he, I think he listed Liverpool at home, Norwich away and um, I'm, I'm, 
I'm stretching my memory here, Brighton at home. And he said, what do you notice about those three games? And I said, he's playing as number 10. He said, exactly. He said that the Pereira's... Pereira was a victim of his own selflessness in that when he first got into the team properly under Mourinho, he was playing as a deep-line midfielder, almost a defensive midfielder, because United didn't have any other options. It had been a World Cup year in 2018. He'd done very well in pre-season. And he was actually advised to say to Mourinho, no, I'm not playing there. But this was an opportunity of a lifetime. It was to cement your place in the United first team. He did quite well in the first game against Leicester, second game against Brighton. United 3-1 down at half-time. He's taken off. And United never really used him in the right role, but I would always argue that he was never truly good enough to be Manchester United's number 10. He did do well there a few times, but the death knell for his United career was when Fernandes came in. As soon as they signed Fernandes, I'm not necessarily sure Pereira even started for the club again in a meaningful game. It's it's difficult to recall or, or in that position as as the number 10. They just bought a, a massive upgrade in, in Fernandes and his, his loan spells were pretty underwhelming. His, his best loan spell was possibly... Um, was it at Granada under under Tony Adams came in in, in 2016, 2016-17 uh, season. And uh, although he did quite well at Flamengo, I think he made a mistake in, in, in a cup game there and, and that kind of, that scuppered a move there. And it looked like he was going to move to Flamengo permanently. So I, I think there was some surprise that he... He got the move to Fulham, and uh, let's face it, uh, there's an agent, uh, Kia Jarabchin, who is, is very influential in Fulham's transfer policy. William's gone there, Cedric Suarez has gone there. I think he's had a hand in, in Pereira going there as well. And uh, fortunately for Fulham, it's worked out, and he, he has pretty much religiously played as as their number 10. And Ten Hag is right. There are certain players who you see the ability, and it's it's excellent it look, it's looking good but then you put them in that pressure cooker environment at united and it, it can be too hot for them and um they they can get suffocated amid the, the 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 scrutiny and the demands and the expectation it's it's very much you know as as important as the uh, you know the ability side is in football the psychological aspect is is absolutely huge as well and that's why someone like as an example, Scott McTominay is not as good a footballer as Andres Pereira, I would argue, but he's been able to handle the, the, the mental side better than him. And um, you know that, that's the way it works sometimes. But to have a to be playing regularly in the Premier League for a club who are comfortably in the top ten this season indicates that Pereira is a, a good footballer, and uh, it, it obviously helps immensely that he's playing at a club where there's not much pressure. If they if if Fulham had finished seventeenth this season, that would have been a success for them. They're probably going to finish in the top ten, and to have got to the FA Cup quarterfinals at the very least, they've they've had an excellent season, irrespective of what happens between now and uh, and the end of the season. Yeah, and there's certainly no regrets at uh, at Old Trafford about selling Pereira, but hopefully he he won't be the story this weekend. Uh, that's everything for today's podcast. Thanks for your contribution, Samuel, and uh, get to bed after your uh, your early morning flight back from Spain. Oh, it wasn't too early, fortunately. Oh, so it, uh, it wasn't as early as Barcelona. That was the three a.m. alarm uh, alarm. 
blaring off, yeah. But uh, it was it was a three a.m. start on Wednesday, so I'm sure everyone's uh, playing violins for me. <laughs> so, no, it's, it's, it's obviously a privilege doing these uh, doing these trips and doing absolutely, this absolutely. Uh, yeah, that's all for today's episode. We'll be back on Monday to discuss the Fulham game and look ahead to the international break and the chance of rest. Uh, please give us a like and subscribe. And a reminder: you can also watch this podcast now on YouTube and subscribe to our YouTube channel for plenty more uh, content such as that and we'll be back and see you on Monday